I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. We have a very exciting guest today, whose brilliant interview with Dolly is coming up later in the episode. Yes, I spoke to Adam Kay about his new book, Dear NHS, which is a celebratory collection of essays from writers and public figures in which they share their experiences of the NHS. Before we get to that, tell me what's been getting you through the week, Dolly, and I hoped to be furiously colouring in my mindful colouring book when I asked you that question but uh, CJ's banned me he's banned me from mindful colouring on air I know you've, you've gone a bit dictatory actually CJ I have to say you're not, you used to be much more chill Dolly that's so now unfair. it's very do this don't do that closer to the mic less close to the mic no colouring in I mean yeah, put away your pencils what's going on just silence. CJ's, CJ's lost his voice. How interesting. Um, <laughs> Tell me what's been getting you through the week. I um, saw a clip of the GC that someone forwarded to me uh, that I want to share with you um, because I just can't stop watching it. It's her in her shop doing orders on the phone at the coalface. I've actually processed your order today. Well, what I'm going to do, now you've told me you've got kidney failure and you're on dialysis, I'm going to send you a free bag in the post with your order today to cheer you up. Do you want red or khaki? Khaki it is, my darling. Lots of love. I will stay fabulous. Do not worry. Bye, my love. Lots of love. Bye. I change people's lives. Everyone needs a bit of that, don't they? I, know. I want what she's got. Me too. Me too. If I can buy that from the Gemma Collins brand, bottled, then I'd do it. I'd empty my bank account for it. Not even just self-belief. Self-respect. That is self-respect. Yeah. For anyone not familiar with the GC, that's Gemma Collins, the reality star. She's actually been all over the news this week as well, Dole, for when I say news, I mean a certain echelon of the internet. For suspiciously full lips. Apparently, she might have got lip fillers during lockdown. I did notice I had a little peruse of her Instagram page after I watched that video. I did notice her, she's got a very full pout at the moment, but far be it from me to diagnose what the cause of that could be. It could be a very effective plumping lip gloss. I did wonder what was happening with women who regularly get injectables. Because if you're someone that does have Botox or fillers or kind of augmentations like that, they need quite regular maintenance. Mm. I did read a fairly terrifying piece about midway through lockdown about women attempting to inject their own fillers 
at home that they bought off the internet and ending up with burst blood vessels and needing emergency oh surgery, which is, as one surgeon pointed <sighs> out, not a great use of surgical time during a pandemic. Mm. Mm. I mean, it was pretty touch and go for me with the old at-home waxing kit. Uh, I think that's as far as I would take it. Did you have to call the neighbour to help? No, just, have you tried waxing at home? No, I am pretty 70s about this whole <laughs> sitch. Have been for Which I think well is... Well pre-lockdown, actually, to be honest. Yeah, I know, but I think that's very hot and cool. Um, but it just, it just takes so long. I don't know why, it t- to do like half a thigh, it took upwards of an hour. Uh, in my head, you ended up like the illustration of the twits when they're glued, uh, when all of their furniture, you know, they come home and all their furniture's been glued to the ceiling yeah. to freak them yeah. out. In my yeah. head, you're stuck to the ceiling like the armchair belonging to the twits. Um, that was kind of the vibe, to be honest. That was the flavour of the whole activity. It was, I mean, I'm still getting wax out of crevices. towels and <laughs> crevices, yeah. Yeah. And I mean the crevices of the sitting room, the grouting and the behind the mirror. And Anyway, another video which has been doing the rounds is of Sky's foreign affairs editor, Deborah Haynes, who was being interviewed when her son Charlie wandered in looking for biscuits. Minister David Cameron was talking about... Oh, I'm really sorry, that's my son arriving. Okay. Sorry, really embarrassed. Sorry. sorry. Hold on one second. Oh, can sorry. Can biscuits? Um, yes, you can have two biscuits. Oh, I think that is charming. I love that. I love that sort of shambles. I just find it... I really like that. I've got another one for you. A health policy expert, Dr Claire Wenham on BBC News, uh, who's discussing lockdown when her daughter Scarlett appears in view trying to find the right spot to put a picture of a unicorn that she's just painted. And it's a lovely unicorn. It's a lovely (laughs) unicorn. Okay, so uh, obviously... um, And do stop me. If you need to crack on, do do tell us. What's his name? My name is Christian. His name is Christian. Christian? Yes. I'm just deciding where it comes up, where Mummy wants it to go. Oh, right. Where does Mummy want it to go? I think just on that shelf is great. Thank you. I'm so sorry. That's so funny. Oh, bless her. She handles that. They both handle that so well, don't they? I wonder how much it's happening. I think, you know, on rolling news channels like BBC, these are probably just two of many, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. God, that does rival um, Robert Kelly, doesn't it? The dad who famously got interrupted by his toddler, Marion, his baby in a walker, and then his harried wife in that order. (laughs) BBC dad, as he became known. I think it's probably still the best one, that one, just because of the gumption of Marion and the um, hilarity of seeing a baby moving at high speed in a walker. (laughs) India Knight wrote about the various interruptions of lockdown last weekend and she included this sentence. She wrote, parents are parents. They don't stop being parents because they're at work. Sometimes there's overlap. What's wrong with that? I found that very freeing as like many women, I found carving out my various identities 
working me and mothering me extremely difficult and I find it quite hard to navigate their coexistence sometimes as someone that works from home irrespective of lockdown. I don't think that melding our public and our professional selves is necessarily the answer which is something that India suggests. I think actually we need to have a stricter demarcation between work and leisure as statistically people are working longer hours in the UK than they've ever worked before. But I do agree with India that cognitively and psychologically, those selves are the same person and we need to make space for that. Yeah, and I suppose that is something that the last four months has really brought to light. You know, there's that convergence of professional and personal has never been more apparent, I think, particularly with for parents. And I'm sure most parents are, especially ones that have to record for Sky News from home, are probably (laughs) quite excited about widening that gap a little bit. Kanye West has announced he is running for president. What the hell? I know, the man is on flying form at the moment. Did you see his post that he did about Kim Kardashian last week? Read the room, Kanye. It was so good, wasn't it? I I mean... I'm obsessed with it. For anyone who doesn't know about this tweet, I got it sent to me on WhatsApp via about 17 different people. (laughs) It was so good. It's a tweet from Kanye saying, I'm so proud of my beautiful wife, Kim Kardashian West, for officially becoming a billionaire. You've weathered the craziest storms and now God is shining on you and our family. So blessed this is still life. So I made you this still life. We love you so much. And then it's a picture of two tomatoes, what looks like a summer squash and a rose on a pavement. And also, I think my favourite tweet of the week, which again got sent to me by a number of people from last week, was by the writer and broadcaster Otegra Wagba, who incidentally, if you don't follow her on Twitter, I have long believed is the best person to follow on Twitter. So make sure you're doing that if you're not already. Kim Kardashian West tweeted, Meet North's Frisian horse. We have 14 gorgeous Frisians on the ranch. And then a picture of a very shaggy-haired, lustrous, dark horse. And Otega just retweeted it with, Congratulations. (laughs) And then she wrote underneath, Like, what the fuck are we supposed to do with this information? (laughs) You could say... What use does it do me to know that you've got 14 Frisian cows? But you could say that about, you could say, what use is it for me to know that you wore latex chaps today? Like a lot of what Mm. they're putting out is probably not of huge use day to day, but you can't deny it's entertaining. I've got to say as well, like, I just really don't need modesty and relatability from Kanye West and Kim Kardashian West. It's just really not what I look for from them. Like, I just, I, I don't, it, yes, it's insensitive. And yes, it's it's like they're on a different planet. But maybe that's because they are on a different fucking planet, guys. And that's <laughs> fine. Like, I don't mind that. Like, these are people with such a different existence to our own. You know, particularly when it comes to Kanye West, whose music I'm a massive fan of. He comes down, he presents us with these gifts from above. I put them on, enjoy the riches from planet Mars, and that's all I need. Like, I don't need Kanye. This is just me personally. I don't need, like, relatability and to see all of my experiences really clearly reflected in the lives and content of 
Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. Yeah, you've got to got to take them for what they are. You know, there's a there's a ton of there's a ton of other people to get different stuff from. But it's like Barbara Streisand. Barbara Streisand has a literal shopping centre in the basement of her house. Does and she? she has Yeah. And every and it's all done like an oldie woldie Dickensian, like with little cobbled streets. And she employs people to work in the shops and she goes in and oh my buys God. things. I'm, I'm googling this. This is the nuttiest thing. Yep. Barbara and she has supermarket. She has two poodles that are clones of one beloved poodle that she had that she wheeled out uh, in a pram onto stage when she did a show at Hyde Park a couple of years ago. And when they looked absolutely terrified, she apparently just bellowed into the mic, excuse them, they don't like show business. That's what I need from Barbara Bloody Streisand. I don't want Barbara Streisand to be reflective of what my life is. Okay, so I've Googled the pictures. Instead of just storing my things in the basement, I can make a street of shops and display them, Streisand said. This is uh, this is a Harper's Bazaar piece from 2010. You're right, really oldie-woldie. There's a sweet shop, and then there's like an ancient, quite creepy, empty-looking pram. Oh, my God, the dolls. There's <laughs> Bee's Dolls Shop is quite terrifying. Oh, my God, there's a special room for wrapping presents. Gift shoppy with a P and an E on the end. Love it. Love her. Can't get enough. I don't want Barbara Streisand doing some sad little Instagram story of her saying, I'm feeling very down this weekend. I've got the Sunday blues and I'm going to order a load of prawn gyoza and I'm going to watch the EastEnders marathon on iPlayer. No, Barbara, that's not what I want from you. That's such a specific scenario. I can't lie. I've found myself in it probably every weekend. Yep. And the pubs and the restaurants are officially open. A lot of people have been saying that this is almost more stressful than when we were in full lockdown. And that is not to say that I've got nostalgia for what was an incredibly intense and traumatic and painful time for many people. But certainly that just this endless confusion. I mean, there's been furore over the fact that beauty salons haven't opened yet but hairdressers have. And when that topic came up on Prime Minister's Question Time, it was sort of flippantly and sneeringly dismissed. And it's it's really interesting because 90% of the beauty industry is made up of women and the majority of the clients are women, which means women are much more adversely affected in this than men. And if you bring it back to economics, which is the way to always get some people to understand things, then it's foolish to be flippant. Millie Kendall, who is the CEO of the British Beauty Council, pointed out that the beauty industry contributes £30 to Britain's GDP annually, which is more than motor vehicle manufacturing. But you would not hear that sniggering out of PMQ Mm. time. Mm. I just don't understand that the hairdressers being open, but the no salon thing. I just, I don't understand what that thought like that through line of thought is or indeed pubs where social distancing is a lot harder to enforce once people have had a few drinks I mean I just think it's an example of narrow thinking really and I do do think it shows how in the grip of the idea that beauty is frivolous and silly we still are the beauty industry hasn't even been given a date yet that they will be able to open I tell you what I loved recently is when the journalist Decca Aikenhead during a 
quote-unquote serious interview with the veteran broadcast journalist John Pienaar a few weeks ago told him that she was looking forward to getting Botox after lockdown. And that might have seemed off the cuff, but I bet its inclusion in the piece was quite considered by her. Oh, definitely, definitely. Thank you for all your emails, Ari, last week's episode. Jackie from Sydney says that sun cream in the beard is very common where she lives and a big turn-off. But, she also adds, Australian women do not sweat off their makeup as they wear primer. Who knew? Do you wear primer? No, but surely we, they cannot assume that all Australian women wear primer. They do. So when you enter the country, there's a sign that says, Welcome to Australia, all women wear primer. I've seen it, Dolly. I've seen it with my own eyes. And Talia sent us this picture of a cafe in Paris, which is using giant teddy bears to ensure that people social distance. I have to say, I am really here for the social distancing while dining memes. In India, people are using umbrellas, which isn't a bad shout. Ah, yeah, I'm liking these teddies. Where are they sourcing all these giant teddies from, I wonder? Quite expensive as well because they are those are they're actually bigger than the humans. They're not even human sized teddies. They're they're enormous. To the uh, to the sound of your vaping, I'm going to tell you <laughs> a little nugget that you're going to enjoy that I read in L this morning over my breakfast. Made me laugh so much, and I have not stopped thinking about it. In an interview about her TV adaptation of How to Build a Girl, Catelyn Moran says that as a teenager going for her first job interview in London. She became a music critic aged just 16. She felt like she needed an extra charge of courage and nobility. And so she took her picture of Emma Thompson off her bedroom wall and ate it. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) It's a much better story than my own teenage tendencies when I needed an extra dollop of courage and nobility. I think when I felt like I needed those, I'd just go extra hard on the Garnier fake tan. (laughs) what's the maddest thing that you and your lilac scousers ever did whilst seeking courage and nobility oh so much I mean I'd cut my own hair I'll tell you what I used to do um at school is I used to walk around with a copy of the female eunuch by Jermaine Greer just just as almost like a clutch bag just because I really it wasn't really for the benefit of my peers who would have thought that made me uh a freak, I think probably was the parlance used at the turn of the century at my school. Um, but it was mainly, I think, for the teachers. I just wanted the teachers to know that I knew about it. How old were you when you were doing that? 12, 13. <laughs> Did you ever read it? Yeah, I loved it. I came to feminism with like slightly the wrong... Slightly the wrong attitude, I think, where I just wanted... Um, well, there is a right way and a wrong way to do feminism, Dolly. I hope you know that. No, but this was just, this is quite wrong. I think I just wanted to be a bit different. <laughs> but I think you probably would have been as a 13-year-old in 2001. Yeah. I don't think I knew many 13-year-olds reading about feminism. I, I, was, I was reading Dilly Cooper. My grasp on it was still pretty loose. And I don't want to paint some picture of me being this, like, brilliantly precocious, clever, forthright teenager like Catelyn Moran. I definitely wasn't. I was definitely just just a bit of a lump looking for some attention. But that's the raison d'etre of the adolescent, isn't it? Well, I think you're all of those things. 
Thank you, my darling. What have you been reading this week? I was very moved by a gentle story about love and loneliness set in the 1950s by Claire Chambers called Small Pleasures. Now, I know I keep banging on about the fact that lots of people are finding it hard to read right now, but I'm banging on about it because I'm getting messages and emails every day from people saying I'm finding it very hard to read right now. So I'm trying to think of some things that might lean into that fear and be um, escapist, but not in a terrifying way. And Small Pleasures is a very bittersweet book she really resists a neat happy ending and that's not a spoiler incidentally it's the very first page of the prologue small pleasures which for anyone lucky enough to be staring down the barrel of a holiday is your ideal novel for the sun lounger is about 39 year old jean swinney a journalist for a regional newspaper in kent living with her truculent aging mother and jean starts working on a very strange story about a virgin birth 29-year-old Gretchen Tilbury claims that her 10-year-old daughter Margaret is a product of parthenogenesis, which is reproduction without fertilisation and is something that happens in plants. And Jean begins working on this story and in getting to know Gretchen and Margaret and Gretchen's husband, Howard, her life begins to open up. Oh, I'm already hooked because I love a virgin birth story. (laughs) So specific cannot get enough of them i love these legends but there are so many of them in sort of past english folklore and i I find it fascinating so small pleasures is actually based on a true story in the mid 50s a biologist called dr helen spurway discovered that guppies were apparently capable of parthenogenesis and that it was possible to induce spontaneous conception in rabbits by freezing their fallopian tubes And in response to her research, a newspaper called The Sunday Pictorial, later renamed The Sunday Mirror, which you will be familiar with, but I have to say I love the pictorial. They launched a Christmas appeal to find women who believed they had experienced a virgin birth. Most of the cases were instantly dismissed. It turns out, who'd have thunk it with zero sex education at school? It turns out that there was confusion over what virginity actually meant. But Mm. there was one case... Emmy Marie Jones, and she apparently conceived a daughter whilst confined to a bed in a German sanatorium, which is the same story, more or less, that Claire tells about Gretchen and small pleasures. I won't say anything more as I don't want to give anything away, but it's a really original book. It It's quiet, but it hums with its own conviction. And you can almost smell the suburban stagnancy, the post-war suburban stagnancy and the longing from Jean on the pages. I'm going to give it to my mum next. It's a real mum charmer. But also there's a line that I think you'll love, Dolly, that I just wanted to read I to love you when because... you pick out lines of books for me. It's very romantic. Maybe I'll start writing them to you by hand. Okay. Oh, I'd love that. This is Jean talking about a woman in her 80s falling in love. I'm sure inside they feel the same emotions as an 18-year-old. The yearning for approval and love doesn't change. The ageing body is just cladding. I love that and I believe that so much. I remember one of the most impactful things that I've ever read is a story on The New Yorker by Roger Angel, who's a great, great journalist about everything that he's kind of learnt about life in his 
early 90s, I think he's 92. I've definitely talked about it on the podcast before. It's my favourite piece of long-form journalism I've read. The piece is called The Old Man, and this is the section I always return to. I remember a passage I came upon years later in an op-ed piece in The Times, written by a man who just lost his wife. We slept naked in the same bed for 40 years, it went. There was also my splendid colleague Bob Bingham, dying in his late 50s, who was asked by a friend what he'd missed or do differently if given the chance. He thought for an instant and said, more venery. More venery, more love, more closeness, more sex and romance. Bring it back, no matter what, no matter how old we are. This fervent cry of ours has been certified by Simone de Beauvoir and Alice Munro and Laurence Olivier and any number of remarried or recoupled ancient classmates of ours. Laurence Olivier, I'm thinking of what he says somewhere in an interview. Inside, we're all 17 with red lips. Beautiful. And I love that Laurence Olivier quote so much, I actually put it in my... I put it in my memoir. I also like the line about um, red lips. I think that's so mm. interesting. I've never thought about that before, that children have um, very vivid lips. And as you yeah. get older and older, everything just fades, doesn't it? Yeah, of course. I so believe that we have to kind of normalise the idea of older sexuality because it's such a punchline and has been such a punchline for such a long time. And... It's, you know, I just think that piece summarises it so well. And that quote that you just read, Pandora, which is, this is an instinct that remains in so many of us in an incredibly persuasive and animalistic way until the day we die. You know, like passion doesn't belong to youth. That's why I love Olive Kitteridge so much. And actually Olive again, the follow-up, both by Elizabeth Strout, even more, that's all about kind of, passion and love and romance and just all the inner workings of people in their 70s or their 80s mm. like and it and it is vanishingly rare to read about it yeah we need yeah. much more on it your next book your third book there you go go write it Off yeah go. i've got a recommendation this week for a documentary pandora that you are going to love if you haven't seen it already it's the Nora Ephron documentary, Everything is Copy. Now, I cannot tell you, I watched this documentary years ago. I can't remember where I watched it. And I've spent every weekend since that first viewing desperately trying to find it on a streaming platform online, trying to buy the DVD, and I couldn't find it anywhere. And then finally, my friend MC told me that it's on Now TV via Sky Documentaries, and I am over the moon. So for anyone who isn't familiar with Nora Ephron, she is a writer. She's my favourite writer. She was a reporter, an essayist, a screenwriter and director. She made films such as Sleepless in Seattle, Julie and Julia, You've Got Mail and When Harry Met Sally. And this documentary was made by her son, who's also a writer called Jacob Bernstein. And it's yeah, it's just a delight. It features archive footage, interviews, archive interviews with Nora Ephron, uh, interviews with her sisters, her friends, her co-workers, including Tom Hanks, Meryl Streep, Steven Spielberg, Mike Nichols, Meg Ryan, her editor, her producers. It also features interviews with her first two husbands. And it really is such Ooh, a satisfying... thing. Yeah, it, well, I mean, it's particularly interesting when her second marriage to Carl Bernstein who was the reporter who famously broke the Watergate scandal in America, he cheated on her while she was pregnant with their second child and uh, left her 
and she very quickly metabolized that experience into a novel and that was how she sort of processed uh that tragedy really that that she went through uh which became a novel called heartburn and then became a film starring meryl streep and jack nicholson i've still and never seen it i've got to watch it it's uh i mean the book's much better I, I i still really like it just because i'm such a huge fan of that story but carl bernstein is really honest in the interview and it's obviously a strange setup because it's his son interviewing him about not only that in, infidelity um but also what happened afterwards in terms of her using it for a story. And I didn't realise until I watched this documentary that it caused this huge rupture between them and between their family um, to the point where, because he didn't want Heartburn to be made and she quite rightly, I think, said, well, this is my story and this happened to me and I'm allowed to tell it and it's with fictional characters. But because they were such a famous couple, it's obviously scandalous for him because everyone would have known it was about him. Did she then write a prologue in a later edition saying there was so much scandal kind of about this, but ultimately, you know, he chose to leave me so I get to tell that story? Did she write... I feel like I've read something by her where she talks about the impact of it. Yes, I think I've read her say that as well. And I think she also adheres to this idea, which, you know, I no longer write about my personal life, but I did for years. It always amazed me how how outraged and full of emotion and sadness uh, men were whenever I was writing something about something awful that they did. as Like the disparity between how terrible they felt about me telling that story as opposed to how they felt about doing that to me. Like doing that to me, they were totally at peace with. But for me, yes. you know, very fairly writing about it in a way that is completely anonymous, like completely anonymizes them, but like empowers me to tell the story. So they're safe. I'm the one more vulnerable telling it. That was the thing that filled them with kind of ra regret and rage. And I do think it was completely her her right to tell that story and I think from what I gather in that documentary it was like hugely healing for her and as I say empowering in a situation that was like incredibly humiliating for her but Carl Bernstein when he talks about it says that they had to have all these clauses put into their divorce papers about how he would be portrayed in the film and I think Mike Nichols, the director, was one of the signatories on the divorce papers. And Carl Bernstein, there's this moment where he says to his son, it was the craziest divorce in history. <laughs> God, that's so... Does he regret it? Did he say he kind of regretted how he'd behaved? I've read interviews with him before where it's apparent that he feels enormous shame about it. And also, I must say, I, I'm not someone who's, like, hugely judgmental about infidelities you know I think life is long and hard and people make mistakes and I you know I, I don't think he's a bad person for doing that and neither would do I think I'm in a position to kind of psychoanalyze him as someone who doesn't know him and like you know ye who cast the first stone but I do just defend her right as I say to to um take control of that situation in the only way that she knew how. And actually, that's really the thrust of the whole documentary, which is looking at this mantra of hers, which is the title of the film, which is Everything is Copy, 
which is this belief that she inherited from her screenwriter parents that every single experience in life can and should be recycled as material. You hear journalists using that a lot now, don't you? It's almost become like every time someone tells some disastrous story about something that's happened to them, someone just replies, everything is copy. It's really stood the test of time, that phrase. Yeah, and it came, the source of it was from her mother, who was a cannibal on her own life. Um, And she, in terms of, you know, reusing material and reusing emotions and, and mistakes and sadness and disaster, as well as comedy... And it's said that on her mother's deathbed, while her mother was dying, Nora was sitting next to her and she said to Nora, come on, Nora, you're a reporter, take notes. God, was her mother a writer as well? Yeah, both her parents were screenwriters, Hollywood screenwriters. But I mean, that's quite, that's quite a dogmatic, you know, to grow up in a household where that is the overarching belief, that is quite a thing to be told, I think. Or that that's the first thought in a scenario like that. Yeah. And, you know, her sister was a writer as well. And I think they talk about how there was friction between them because obviously they both wanted to write about their family experiences. But as we know, within a, one household and within, and within one family, everyone's version of what their childhood was is completely different and conflicting. It's It's almost fascinating, actually, how different the version of one's childhood can be to your sibling's version. And they can be in direct opposition to each other and both can also be true. Um, And then the really interesting part of the documentary, which is the end of the documentary, is talking about the fact that when this is Nora Ephron, this is the woman who touted the mantra of everything is copy. This is the woman who, within months after... Her husband had left her. She was at her typewriter writing it up as a novel. Why did she then decide to keep her terminal illness secret from basically every single person that she knew? That comes down to something I'm very interested in, which is that if you share some truths, is it incumbent on you to share all of them? She yeah. obviously decided that her her last oeuvre was not one she wanted to make public. That's riv- that is yeah. riveting, though, because clearly, um, you know, fertile ground for if everything is copy, then that is fertile ground. Yeah, and it was completely off. It was the only thing, apparently, that was completely off bounds. Although people who know her said that actually she was much more private than people think she was. And that's something that you find over and over again, I think, with essayists and memoirists and first person journalists and columnists is that the part of themselves that they show to you is incredibly carefully selected and it is a folly to believe that 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 they have no private self um, or that they have no part of themselves or no part of their lives that we are completely unaware of. And I think negotiating those boundaries of privacy and public consumption is is really interesting and I think this Nora Ephron documentary is just such a it's such a beautifully produced film and the story of her is so well told and the story of her and what we see and what we didn't see is really told from a 360 perspective so whether you're a fan of her or not I'm sure you would have watched one of her films at some point I think it's a really really enjoyable watch I'll definitely check that out and that's on now tv Yeah, that's on Now TV in the Sky documentaries section.
Brilliant. Thank you. And other than that, I actually haven't got anything else to recommend this week as I've been up to my tits in deadlines um, and I haven't had time to listen to my usual ongoing soundtrack of podcasts. But for anyone who wants some audio companionship this week, I'd like to flag the podcasts that I can't wait to listen to. One is John Legend on WTF and Hillary Clinton on The Hollywood Reporter. The Food Programme has done an episode I can't wait to listen to called Is It Harder to Make It Into the Food Industry If You're Black? And there is a brand spanking new podcast called Doing It Right with Pandora Sykes. And I can't wait to tune into that. And I'm even more psyched to listen to it because the first episode is Joe Lycett, who is one of the most charming and funny men on TV. Oh, thanks, pal. Um, I really appreciate that as a number one podcast. Not that you've listened to it yet, so you could regret it, but you can't take it back. But yeah, no, he is very charming. I told his publicist after the interview that I wanted to take him as a second husband. And she said, probably rather awkwardly, but we'll never know, as it was on an email, that she would let him know and she'd buy a hat. I haven't had an update yet, though, on on when the marriage is happening. But I mean, everyone's quite busy, aren't they? I'm sure I'll get one soon. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Our guest this week is the writer, comedian, performer, broadcaster, and former doctor, Adam Kay. He is the author of the multi-million best-selling book, This Is Going To Hurt, Diaries of a Junior Doctor, and more recently, Twas the Night Shift Before Christmas, Festive Hospital Diaries. Now, he is the curator and editor of Dear NHS, 100 Stories to Say Thank You. The book features personal essays and stories from writers and public figures about the moments in their lives when they have relied on the service of our health system. From the silly to the severe, from the heartwarming to the heartbreaking, contributors include Dame Julie Walters, Ed Sheeran, Monica Alley, Sandy Togsvig, Nish Kumar, Miranda Hart, Emma Watson, Malala Yousafzai, Paul McCartney and Amelia Clark. There is poetry from Benjamin Zephaniah and Pam Ayres. There's even recipes for batch cooking to take down to your local hospital for key workers, thanks to Jamie Oliver. It is timely, funny and a hopeful book that offers gratitude and reverence to those who've cared for us during the last four months of an extraordinary health emergency. All profits from the book will go to NHS charities together to fund vital research and projects and the Lullaby Trust, which supports parents bereaved of babies and young children. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the Hilo. Thank you very much for having me. You forgot to mention one of the contributors was Dolly Alderton. (laughs) The smallest fry in the book is Dolly Alderton. But uh, I just loved reading it so much. I mean, I knew... Um, from reading about the proposal for this book that I would just love it on its kind of very principle. But every single entry of this book feels just so full of thought and heart. And it really feels like 
it's a very kind of precious and personal moment that, that everyone is sharing. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind reading from your hilarious introduction. Oh, of course I will, yes. I'm very proud to share with you, dear NHS, a hundred stories to say thank you. In the pages that follow, 109 well-known people recount the personal experience of the health service. Yeah, about that, 109. Asking people to be involved was a bit like posting out invites to a wedding. You send a few too many because you assume there'll be a bunch of people who can't make it. Well, practically everyone said yes, and we'd already announced the title. I'll, I'll probably tell you the names of the people who said no if you buy me a drink. This was slightly embarrassing because my role as editor involved two simple tasks, assembling 100 stories and writing 500 words of introduction. And I went over on that one too. I didn't even have to edit out spelling mistakes. The publishers did that for me. Incidentally, the the group of people who made the most spelling mistakes were the professional writers. Absolute shambles. And unlike when my wedding proved more popular than expected, however, I couldn't just shove an extra table in the corner of the marquee for the least important guests. Apologies uh, to any of my family who are listening. Um, My first thought was to play bouncer in a shit nightclub and do one in, one out, but that felt slightly unfair. And then I realised that if I could count both hairy bikers as one entry... I could attempt to persuade you that there's a pop group comprised of Ian Rankin, Emma Watson, Trevor McDonald, Lorraine Kelly, Joanna Lumley, Johnny Vegas and Malala. And um, tell me you wouldn't buy a ticket to that. Instead, (laughs) I approached it as I would a a 4am kebab and just crammed the lot in. Brilliant. Can you tell me a bit about how you came up with the idea for this collection and what the process was like of assembling it so quickly? Because you really did it in in a matter of weeks didn't you it it all happened very quickly um I guess it ultimately came down from a feeling of helplessness you know we're all sat at home doing you know a lot less than we thought we'd be doing all these people are out on the on the front line being amazing and, and saving the rest of our lives and I just wanted to do something anything And I came up with this idea of assembling some thank you notes because um, we don't often enough say thank you to to the NHS. We sort of not take it for granted, but, you know, when you're in a stressful, difficult situation, it's not always top of your list to remember to, you know, send a card afterwards or whatever. And I thought this, this would be a nice thing. And also it could say thank you in a more practical way by raising money um, for, for those, those charities you mentioned. So um, that was the, that was what was behind it. And, um, and I mentioned it to my publisher who um, thankfully agreed that it it sounded a bit like a book and um, said, you know, off you go, start emailing. And it was, I mean, the, the emailing part of it was an absolute joy. I mean, it couldn't have been any easier. It came together really quickly because like I said, everyone said, yes, we, we sat down and we wrote this sort of, we wrote out our dream team of who would be the the best imaginable people to do this book and started, you know, putting the feelers out and everyone was just like, yeah, definitely, obviously. Um, because whoever you are, however big and famous, however many, you know, hundreds of millions of records you've sold or trillions of books or whatever, we're all just human. I didn't give anyone a brief, you know, you, you had the, the email from me. It was just, 
tell me something about the NHS, a personal experience, a family experience. It can be a couple of lines. It can be a massive, great long essay. Be funny. Be. I didn't say, you know, I didn't put it, put, push anyone in any direction because I thought mm-hmm. that would get the, you know, the most honest book. And, and I think we've, I think we've definitely achieved that. It's, um, I'm very proud to have been involved with it. And varied as well, which, you know, shows the full spectrum of everything that can happen in those buildings, which can be hopeful, joyful, sad, tragic. You, it really is a kind of showcase of all of it. I think, yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you think that. It really, it really does everything. And interestingly, I was surprised by some of the, some of the stories that came out. People who I thought were going to write, a, you know, a, you know, a cracking funny story, which is going to really, you know, lift the, you know, often wrote, you know, moments of absolute um, tragedy. Um, mm. uh, like, you know, Jimmy Carr springs to, springs to mind. It's a, it's a heartbreaking um, thing he talks about, about, about his mum. And, um, and there was so much stuff I hadn't realised about all these people. And why would I? No one wanders around talking about their medical history, but um, mm. the wonderful Jacqueline Wilson, um, I, I didn't know that she'd, she'd been such a, a frequent flyer um, with the NHS. And, you know, she's, uh, as with so many people, literally saved her life. You know, she's, she's wandering around with, her, with a kidney transplant and um, that's, that's her life saved. And um, Graham Norton talks about... I couldn't, I couldn't oh. believe that one. So we think we we know Graham Norton, don't we? Because he's always yeah. there, and he's always, you know, we sort of you assume that you know everything he's got to say. But he talks about um, at the start of the book moving to London for the first time, being away from his his family, and as a student getting stabbed, and talking about the NHS as the safety net that sort of picks him up in the way that his his family would have done back home and you're like oh goodness did not know that the book is a collection of 109 stories and within that hundreds of moments and memories of the nhs as we've said from the light to the dark to the trivial to the terminal did you pick up when you had these these stories coming into you when you were reading them did you pick up on any recurring themes uh in all of these accounts there are a few things that that, that that turned up a few times. Um, and the thing that made me particularly proud were the people who compared what we have here to what they have in America. Yeah. And what an amazing thing we have and what a precious thing we have. Um, mm. uh, and, I was, I was, and I was pleased to see people talking about mental health as well as mm. as physical health, and the, the thumping baseline of the book is is one of people going beyond the call of duty, and a, another theme that comes across time and time again is it isn't just you know the the doctors and the and the nurses and the midwives and the and the, the people who get often get you know top billing when people yes. think about the NHS your mind goes straight to to those but um, like Amelia Clark talks so. Uh, wonderfully about all the, the the pieces of the jigsaw that she remembers being the you know the the, the, the cleaners and the porters mm. who she actually had much more interaction with than the doctors and the and the cooks who made her the um, you know the, the the fish pie that she liked and uh, and zooming out even further the biggest recurring theme is one of love 
love that these NHS professionals have for us, for their job in doing what they do, going beyond the call of duty. And in return, this this huge outpouring of love we have back for the NHS. The book, like This Is Going To Hurt, is littered with details of the absurd, which just seem to take place on hospital wards, whether it's Chris O'Dowd being taken in for a heart attack and being told it was in fact trapped wind. (laughs) (laughs) Or Frank Skinner's partner breaking her toe on a kind of hippie retreat in Cornwall when she tripped up over an upturned cauldron. Um, I just wanted to know, as if you wanted to kind of share a teaser, what were your favourite details of the absurd in the book? I I think you're I think you're right that any depiction of the NHS wouldn't be honest without mentioning uh, the ridiculous stuff that happens. And you've you've definitely already uh, stolen the the go to uh, another another one is um, is Jonathan Ross, who uh, who writes. uh, It's a a very funny bit of uh, bit of writing. Um, And he talks about going to a hospital appointment, uh, clutching a a milk bottle full of piss in his uh, in his lap uh, because uh, he was told that a a urine sample was involved and uh, it wasn't briefed as to either the volume required or the fact (laughs) that it could probably be provided in the hospital environment rather than on the the top deck of the number 36, wherever it was. I also uh, really liked Michael Palin's account of how his celebrity and his status, his beloved status, seem to kind of puncture every incident that he's had in a hospital, (laughs) including one time where he had all these doctors coming in constantly to pay him so much attention and collect all this information at his bedside. And he couldn't believe how attentive they were. And And then an actual doctor came in and said, we've put a sign on the door they weren't doctors, they were Monty Python fans. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a big overlap between doctors and, uh, and Monty Python fans, of course. <laughs> and Dick Graham Chapman was, uh, was both a doctor and a python. His story uh, does contain uh, the amazing line, uh, you so rarely see your own bowels. Uh, so, I mean, if you, want to, if you want a teaser for the book, that's... Uh... <laughs> That's that's from Sir Michael, um, but yeah, there's, there's a few people talk about you know what happens when you know that the doctor is going to recognise you, and I, I mentioned this very briefly in my in my introduction that um, this isn't something you're ever told about at medical school. Mm. What is what's the what's the official way you're meant to behave when you mm. spot someone who's massively famous? Do mm. you say? Uh, oh my god I'm a big fan or does that become unprofessional or do you just pretend that you don't but if they're really famous it's slightly absurd that you can that you sort of don't yes. uh, don't even pretend to know. and in my first year as a doctor I had I had one of one of these I was um so I was very 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 junior and I uh I was in A&E seeing this very very famous singer who I'll tell you the name of when the when the microphone's off uh but uh he was uh on tour in uh in the country and had uh what we call in medicine a funny turn which is you know you know 
it's a, it's a bit of a catch-all. His funny turn uh, was as a result of an enormous quantity of Class A drug consumption. Right. Um, and yeah. and all, all was well, and, uh, and, and he was fine and left. And, um, but... I was being very thorough because I was junior and, you, and I was asking every possible question you're meant to. You, you sort of have this list of questions you ask everyone and one of, one of them, you record their, their occupation and I asked for his occupation and he just raised an eyebrow at me um, as if to say, you really know who I am, which I, which I did. And, uh, <laughs> and as, as I mentioned in the book, I do regret not getting my stethoscope signed. Adam, you've spent years writing and talking about our National Health Service. Is there anything that you wish the public could know or understand about how it operates? You know, you go do these events, you engage with your fans, you talk to people about the NHS. And I just want to know if there's anything that you've picked up that is a misconception about the NHS or something that you wish uh, British people could understand about it. I'll do a Q&A session at the end of a, of a chat or I'll write, a, I'll write a piece in a paper and it'll be the comment section under, underneath or whatever, or people writing into the editor. And it's the idea that almost every issue in the NHS can be solved by charging people five or ten pounds if, mm. you know, if they miss an appointment or mm. if they turn up at A&E drunk. Or you know th- th- things like this. There's, there's some sort of fine system, and it's uh, I don't know how it's happened, but it's the go-to middle-class idea of how to fix the NHS, and it is just a very, very bad idea. And happily, I can tell your zillions of listeners now why it's a bad idea, so um, so they can uh, decide not to put their hands up at the next Q and A I do. Um, and the <laughs> and the reason the reason ultimately is that for a lot of people, £5, £10 is a vast amount of money. Mm. And for the people for whom 5 or £10 is a vast amount of money, they're the, they're, those are the people with the quietest voice, the people who will mm. be most disproportionately affected by a change that feels so small. And we should not be putting up barriers to care. Mm. And... Someone, if, if someone's worried they might get fined uh, for some reason for going to A&E, then they might not go to A&E because they're worried about the, the potential cost. How do you tell if the person who's turned up um, in A&E incoherent smelling of alcohol is incoherent because of the amount of alcohol they've had or because they've, you know, they've hit their head and they've got some, some brain hemorrhage? And it's, um, that, is, that is not the... That is not the answer. Another thing I hear um, are moans uh, about waiting times to see their GP, um, and which has overtaken the previous moan of waiting times for their operation. Those waiting times are nothing to do with their GP. Those waiting times are because of staffing, and there aren't enough people to see the patients and so the the queue gets longer and longer and longer and um the the people to to be blamed aren't the people on the on the front line no the number of times you know I, I worked in I worked in hospitals um rather than in in general practice but 
the number of times I would be told, I've been waiting here for three hours, five hours. I'm really sorry. And that's awful. And no one should be waiting five weeks for routine GP appointments. And no one should be waiting for 18 months for their hip to be done. And no one should be sat in the outpatients clinic for four hours after their, you know, after the time of their appointment. But the, the, the problem is, is resources and resources cost money and it needs more mm. money. And that's, that's where your anger needs to be directed to the people who, the people who assign the money, not the, not the people who are staying late to try and, <laughs> to try and help you out. This book comes off the back of a global pandemic. You, for years, were a medical professional. And I know this is an enormous question to ask, and I don't ask you to speak on behalf of the medical community, but as someone who has worked at the centre of the system and now watches it from the sidelines during this crisis, what have been your thoughts over the last few months in terms of how our government have responded? My first thought is that I'm very glad... It wasn't me making the decisions because nothing that's had to be decided was easy. That said, we haven't done very well. And there are fewer and fewer ways where the people who've made the decisions are able to pretend that we are in any way leading the pack in terms of numbers of deaths, in terms of deaths per million, in terms of our, our testing, in terms of our tracing, in terms of the care home crisis, in terms of the PPE, in terms of everything. We, we've fallen short of the mark. And the saddest thing is that ultimately it was quite predictable. It's the same virus which affects human beings exactly the same whether they're in London or Venezuela or Madrid. And we saw it coming. We saw it coming in Italy about a fortnight ahead of us. And at the time that we started seeing these horrible death figures mounting up and I'm talking like at the point where there were 300 deaths in Italy a number which at one point we were counting as a good day in the UK if there were only 300 deaths I mean we we became very blunted the the the, the, the huge scale of the of the yeah. tragedy during this but at one point 300 300 people had died in Italy and I think we'd had you know none or one or two deaths here we could see it was coming and the decision was was not made to increase our physical distancing, lock us down, whatever it was. We were still at the wash your hands more than ever stage. And, you know, there's a value to hand washing, but it just wasn't enough. And loads of wise people, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in sort of sitting on Twitter, you know, reading, you know, expert opinions and, you know, these brilliant people on the news and on podcasts and all these wise people were saying there is no reason not to lock down now this is this is coming let's let's stop it viruses spread exponentially time loss now equates to deaths in the thousands and mm. and for whatever reason they decided not to and i think when all is said and done at the final 
reckoning or the public inquiries or whatever it is, there will be a huge amount of criticism there, particularly us being told we're following the science, as if the science is one person, one idea. Science is this discussion, it's an argument, it's, mm. it evolves and... They would, I don't believe they were following the science. If they were, they were following very different science to every other country who got, the, who got this awful disease under control. There's a very touching essay by Stanley Tucci, a New yeah. Yorker who moved to the UK when he married a British woman, in which he talks about the things he had to acclimatise to once he'd crossed the Atlantic. And as you mentioned at the top of our interview, the thing he found most astonishing is that you can walk out of being treated in a hospital without being presented with a medical bill. Yeah. Reading that essay is such a reminder of how lucky we are to have this system, although it is under so much strain. The crisis of the last four months has, I think, deepened an, a national gratitude to our free healthcare. How hopeful are you that it is a system that has a long-term future? I think I'm more hopeful than I was before the pandemic. So if we're looking for positives, and I think we probably should, um, I think we have cohesed as a nation around the NHS more than ever, and we know what a, what a precious thing we have. And Stanley Tucci's um, essay is, he talks basically about being incredulous about mm. this amazing system and it's something that people have talked about th throughout the book and Stephen Fry talks you know talks about the American suspicion of, of socialized healthcare. Um, but if you come over here not having experienced the NHS before you suddenly work out how good it is uh, Stanley Tucci describes it as precious and vital and I think mm. that's that's you know that's two good adjectives for for the NHS. I think he puts it puts it so well. And and he also talks about the fact that it may well take this crisis to to make. He talks about the, make the politicians understand what a great thing we have. But I think. I think it'll never be taken for granted again. I think if the NHS comes under threat, be it from post-Brexit negotiations or more likely more insidious funding cuts, people will get to their feet. People will march on the streets and fight with everything they've got for this institution that's kept us all alive. Like you say... When you leave, they don't say, here's your bill, itemised. It's nothing. Because it's been paid for already out of our, out of our you know, our, our pay packets. And um, if we're lucky enough to have an income. And, and if we're not, it's been paid for by the, by the country. It's the most beautiful, simple, perfect idea of, of how healthcare should work. As Stanley Tucci says about the NHS, may it have a long and healthy life. Dear NHS, 100 Stories to Say Thank You is published by Orion on the 9th of July. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. 
thank you very much for listening to the high low you can write to us by emailing the high low show at gmail.com you can tweet us at the high low show and you can buy our merch by going to the where all proceeds go to charity 50 percent women's aid and 50 percent to show racism the red card we will talk to you next week Bye-bye. bye bye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.